0: And now this afternoon, I'd invite you to turn with me me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8. Matthew, chapter 8. We'll read a section beginning in verse 1. Well, actually, you know, I'm going to, well, yeah, yeah, we'll do verse 1. I said verse 5 in my notes, but I changed my mind. We'll begin in verse 1. And I want you to see it from verse 1 because I want you to understand and appreciate the context of what is happening now. In the previous three chapters in Matthew's Gospel, Christ has been in the mount. We have that section we know as the Sermon on the Mount. And what we have now, beginning in chapter 8, is what takes place in Christ's ministry immediately following that sermon. So we read in verse 1, When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will, be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus saith unto him, See thou, tell no man, but go thy way. Show thyself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof, but speak the word only, and thy servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west, and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, And as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the same hour. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 13. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I had the privilege a week ago, I think it was a week ago Monday, of bringing the devotion to the sermon audio prayer group. Uh, some 70 people from all over the world. Kind of interesting to scroll through the screens and see the different uh, places that are represented. Uh, I think of a man from Cambodia who was there. Number of people from Canada, some from Mexico. and uh, some from various places in Europe, a, free, a, a few from Northern Ireland that are on there. And uh, so I considered it a blessing. Though it's always a challenge because uh, I am restricted to 10 minutes. Give a 10-minute devotional. Uh, It's a wonder I got invited back because after the last time I did this, I didn't time myself at all. I had no regard for the clock and I didn't discover until I saw uh, the sermon uploaded and they are all uploaded uh, on uh, the United Prayer Front site. And I discovered, to my horror, I had gone 16 whole minutes, almost as long as Joel Beakey. He went 20, but he's Joel Beaky. <laughs> so, this time, I made sure I had a clock in front of me, and I was uh, much better in uh, reaching my um, required time uh, requirement, but... I had been struck from a text. I didn't actually preach on this text, but I used it as um, uh, an illustration. The words that we find in verse 8 at the bottom of the text, where the centurion says to the Lord, But speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. But speak the word only. I'm reminded of a great man of the past, a reformer, William Tyndale, the man who's generally recognized as the reformer that translated the Bible into English. Now, it's true that Tyndale wasn't actually the first man to translate the Bible into English. Nearly a hundred years earlier, John Wycliffe had made the first translation Interesting to note that Wycliffe's translation was out of the Latin. Tyndale's translation was out of the original Greek and Hebrew. So he has a little bit of an advantage there, I suppose. And Tyndale was the first one to really publish and circulate the Bible to the English-speaking people. His story is certainly one worth studying. It was not an easy thing to publish and distribute the scriptures in those days. In fact, it was done with the risk of being burned at the stake, the very thing which eventually happened to William Tyndale for publishing and distributing the scriptures. Punishable by death, burning at the stake uh, by the Church of Rome, no less. Now, it might be easy to ask, why Why would a man take such risks to circulate the Bible? And I believe the answer must be found in the fact that Tyndale knew the power of God's Word. Indeed, the Reformation could be described as a time when God's Word went forth with great power once again. And so, an interesting question arises out of Scripture and out of history, and the question would be this, and this is what I dealt with in the devotion. How close are we to untold power and blessing? Do you know how close we are to revival as a nation? I'd have you realize that we are only a word away from untold blessing and revival and power. We're only a word away from the next Reformation. All that needs to happen is for Christ to speak the word only. The centurion in our text realized this. Interesting that in the beginning of this chapter you find a leper approaching Christ who says to him in verse 2, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Christ responds by putting forth his hand and touching the leper and healing him of his leprosy. And immediately following that incident, we read of the centurion, and actually we know from Luke's account that it was a representative of the centurion, who came to Christ seeking his help for a servant that was sick of the palsy and grievously tormented. Very seriously ill was his servant. And I find it somewhat amazing in verse 7 to see how far Christ would condescend to the understanding of those that were seeking him for healing. We read in that verse that Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. Do you see how far Christ is condescending to make that statement? There was a growing understanding in the minds and hearts of those that surrounded Christ that he was a man with great power. They weren't sure what to make of him. They felt perhaps that he was a prophet who could work miracles in some manner the way previous prophets had done. But there seemed to be a limiting factor to their understanding. They evidently felt that in order for Christ to perform a miracle, he must be present. He must be right there at the point of need, right there on the scene in order to heal a man. And in condescending to this limited understanding, Christ says, I will come and heal him. But the centurion, and this is somewhat remarkable to note, and keep in mind this man was a Gentile, he had a higher view of Christ. He knew that Christ's bodily presence was not necessary for this healing to take place, He knew that all that was necessary was for Christ to speak the word only and the servant would be healed. And for this, the centurion's faith is commended by Christ. He calls it great faith. And this is only one of two instances in the Gospels where we find Christ commending someone for great faith. And ironic to note that in both instances, it was Gentiles that were commended. His own disciples were never commended for great faith. They were challenged for little or no faith. We don't have any record of them ever being commended for great faith. The centurion is is commended for that. I wonder if anybody can think of the second instance. I know I've referenced it in the past. It would be the Syrophoenician woman. You remember the one that kept uh, begging for Christ to heal, uh, what was it, her son, uh, of a grievous disease of demonic possession, I forget exactly what. And in that instance, the disciples tried to shoo her away, She was a Gentile, she was Syrophoenician, and Christ himself turns to her and says, it's not appropriate to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. So even Christ was putting up uh, resistance to her, and yet she would not be denied. Truth, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And for that she is rewarded, and she receives the healing that she sought. Two instances of, of great faith being commended. Well, what a challenge to us. If we can believe that all that's necessary for personal or nationwide revival is for Christ to but speak the word only, then we can be be encouraged and challenged to attempt and expect great things in the cause of Christ but speak the word only, the centurion said. And what I want to do today, what I want to start to do today, and I'll probably carry this over to uh, to Sunday afternoons, I want you to see the potential behind this text. And then I want you to rise to the challenge of this text. Let's recognize the potential, let's rise to the challenge, but speak the word only. And how can we see the potential and rise to the challenge of the text? Well, we may do so, first of all, by noting what the text teaches us about Christ. What does this teach us about Christ? But speak the word only. And the centurion is commended, and his prayer is granted, and Christ does indeed speak the word only. And the healing takes place. Now, what is it about Christ that the centurion recognized that the others didn't? I said a moment ago that there was a growing understanding in the crowd that Christ was different from others. We read in chapter 7 and verse 28 in the previous chapter, a statement that pertains to the impact of Christ's teaching after he had just taught people about the kingdom of God. In that section, we know as the Sermon on the Mount, that 28th verse tells us that the people were astonished at his doctrine. And then it tells us why they were astonished in the very next verse. And this statement really leads into something that the centurion acknowledged to an even fuller degree, Look at verse 29, if you will, back just a page from where we read, Matthew 7 and verse 29. This is at the conclusion now of the Sermon on the Mount. Let me back up and read verse 28 also. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now keep that statement in mind and look again at the words of our text in the verse that follows in chapter 8. and verse 8, the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof, but speak the words only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, go, and he goeth, and to another come, and he cometh, and to my servant do this, and he doeth it. Do you see here what the centurion recognized about Christ? He recognized him to be a man of authority. He has authority. The people who heard him preach the Sermon on the Mount, they recognized him as being one who spoke with authority. There was a growing recognition then that Christ possessed authority. And that authority made him stand out from the scribes. Well, what is it that makes a man stand out from the others authoritatively? Was it the content of his message? He certainly covered things in the Sermon on the Mount that had long been buried by the Jewish nation. He expounded in no uncertain terms how far the law of God penetrated, not only to the outward actions, but right down to the thoughts and intents of the heart. But it wasn't merely the content of his teaching that enabled others to perceive his authority. In fact, I think it could be easily demonstrated that what Christ expounded in the Sermon on the Mount was not a new revelation to the Old Testament. You can find Christ's statements about the application of the law to the heart and not merely actions verified in Old Testament scriptures. So it wasn't merely the content of his teaching that enabled others to perceive his authority but it was his power. This is what came across in his teaching. The Spirit of God bore witness to his word and brought that word forth with power. So when he spoke, his adversaries were silenced. When he spoke, his audience came under conviction of sin. When he spoke, the demons trembled and obeyed him. When he spoke, the winds and the waves were stilled. Now returning to our text in Matthew 8, we see that the centurion recognized and believed in Christ's authority and the power that accompanied that authority. Just as that centurion recognized his own authority, which would be backed by the law of the Roman Empire, he perceived that Christ had authority over the very elements of the universe and over the demonic world and over diseases. In other words, this centurion surely believed that Christ had the power of God. How else could a man heal a servant grievously tormented with palsy without even being in that servant's presence, except that man have the very power and authority of heaven. Now our confidence for service should be increased and our reverence in worship should be deepened when we realize that this is our Savior and our God. And this power and authority still resides with him. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth, he says at the end of Matthew's gospel, chapter 28 and verse 17. There is no higher authority than the authority of Christ. There is no court of appeal beyond Christ. And it is in connection with this power and authority that Christ says to each one of us today, Go. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Matthew 28. Now if you truly believe that he has the authority and the power and that his name truly is exalted above every name then you'll see the potential for the advancement of his kingdom and you'll believe in the potential behind the words of our text but speak the word only. And you'll be encouraged to rise to the challenge presented by the text this certainly took place during the days of the Reformers and in the days of Tyndale. The more the Church of Rome attempted to stamp out the Bible, the more the word of God grew and increased in similar fashion to what you have in the book of Acts. One of the more humorous incidents in the Reformation centers on an enterprising businessman who approached the Catholic Archbishop of London and offered to collect all the books that Tyndale distributed if the Archbishop was willing to pay the price to buy them from the businessman. And the plan was yeah, this Archbishop would buy up all these books and then dispose of them. And thus Tyndale's attempt to spread the word of God would be stifled. The archbishop happily agreed. And before long, the businessman had gathered most of Tyndale's Bibles. What the archbishop did not know, however, is that the businessman took his profits and invested them in Tyndale's next edition. Oh, the word could not be suppressed. Everybody wanted it. Everybody was reading it. And the impact was phenomenal. England was ushered into the kingdom of Christ through the salvation of souls. And it seems like when it comes to the Reformation, England of all uh, nations is recognized as being impacted, not so much by a reformer as by the Bible itself. So speak the word only. That's a good petition for us to take to the Lord in prayer, you know. When we think of our services on Sunday, Lord, speak the word. Speak it with power. Let the voice of God by his spirit be heard above the voice of the preacher. Let it be the still, small voice, Lord, of your spirit, bearing witness to the truth of the word about Christ and making the application to every heart need. How far away are we from revival? We are but a word away. And it doesn't matter, and I'm concluding now with the narrative I preached from from 2 Kings 6, where the city of Samaria was under siege. And the king's servant asked Elisha the prophet, why should we wait any longer? He said, "If, if God would open windows in heaven, Could we possibly be delivered from this famine that has gripped the city? What did Elisha say? Tomorrow, about this time, shall so much barley be sold for a shekel and so much other grain sold for a couple of shekels. There wasn't a trace of any of those grains to be found in the city. It was under famine. It had reached uh, uh, critical uh, proportions. Uh, grotesque things were taking place in that city under famine. And yet, what did it take for the famine to be alleviated? All it took was a word from God. And it came to pass exactly how the prophet said it would the very next day. But speak the word only. Well, we'll come back and visit this again next Sunday afternoon, Lord willing. And we'll focus a little more closely. We've looked today pretty much at what the text teaches us about Christ himself. We'll note next week what the text teaches us about Christ's word as well as what it teaches us about the centurion's faith. Let's close then in prayer for this afternoon. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence, we thank thee that Christ has this kind of power, the power of his word. We know, Lord, that it was the power of his word that brought this very universe into existence. He said, let there be light, and there was light. Oh, Lord, this is a power that goes so high above and beyond our comprehension. Help us, Lord, to believe it. Help us to seek thee for it. We pray, Lord, that even in our day thou wilt speak the word only and turn back the flood tide of iniquity and bring salvation to many souls. O Lord, grant that our confidence in thy word may be strong and may we be found bountifully sowing this word, recognizing as we do the potential behind it for great things to take place. So hear our prayers now in Jesus' name. Amen.